Welcome to the DevReady Podcast, where we're helping non-techs build better tech. Today, we have Mark Milanese joining us from One Lens. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, it's, it's awesome to be here. I mean, as I said, we're, I'm in Melbourne still, so I'm in lockdown. So Yes, <laughs> as we, we all are. A, a Zoom meeting for now. Yeah. yeah, we're not far from each other, just in uh, surrounding suburbs away from each other. But yeah, all stuck in different rooms. But unfortunately, that's the world we're in right now. So One Lens, Mark, um, tell us a little about One Lens, how you actually started it, got involved, and yeah, what was the process and thinking behind it? Yeah, so I came back to Melbourne and wanted to see where to get into and how to get into uh, what, what was the next adventure. So I landed in a startup boot camp, actually, so the, the team out there, Trevor and um, Brian, got into their fintech program as an entrepreneur in, in residence, and then... Mm-hmm. From there, we had an idea bubbling away early 2019, really, but just hadn't had the time to, to get the tech and get the team together. So, as I mentioned, when I came back into the startup bootcamp, met a few decent startups that we thought that we could help within Australia and beyond into APAC. And one of the themes we were getting through a lot of these startups as part of the program was, you know, do you have any investors for us or do you know your networks who will invest in the company? And having gone through that program, it was then, okay, what's next? So that they go through an awesome accelerator and then they're ready, you know, to repel to that next stage. So we started building out the tech for this one lens platform. And what it is, it was the rationale behind it was, it was born to save, save us clicking emails to people or to investors. Yeah, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with them out pretty much saying, have you even bothered looking at half these decks? So we wanted mm-hmm. to create that whole, the whole ecosystem about bringing startups, venture capital investors together in a digital environment. Okay. So it's like a so community of- for them online and mm-hmm. an easier way to get information between them, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And look, it started out just with our um, our ecosystem, our networks. Uh, obviously, as you guys know, minimal viable products. So you, you get the, mm-hmm. the technology up there. We get feedback from the startups and, and feedback from obviously some of the VCs we've got on, on the platform. And then that just evolved. So when that was building, we actually um, were in Singapore at the time with you guys know Paul Kank. And mm-hmm. we decided to, you know, get a bit of publicity and being the Aussies from, from Australia there for FinTech Week, we decided to host an event there. I think it was on the, the Monday of the Singapore uh, FinTech Festival. And that was pretty much our soft launch to get corporates, governments and VCs along with startups together and just giving a lot of these startups opportunities that they probably wouldn't usually get, like to, to sit with a VC and have a coffee or, or have a beer with them in a casual environment without that heavy pitch. So in, in reality, you're, you're a startup helping startups get access to funding. <laughs> The, plat- a platform. the platform, yeah. you would say, is a startup yeah. in a sense, yeah. but our mm. our team and networks aren't mm. essentially startups. They've either built companies, mm. exited, mm. worked in the corporate landscape, a couple of our board are VCs themselves, so they own funds out of um, London. Okay. So it, it's a good mix of people, and, and a few of them have either worked in um, worked or led startup, accelerated programs across APAC. Yeah, nice. So that board, that team, how did you go up about building that? Because in reality, building a startup is all about team and people. So how did you approach that? Where did you find your network? What did you do to build that network? 
Yeah, that's an awesome question. And, and that's probably the biggest tip for any startup out there. From most of the VCs we know, they'll look at teams, you know, who is your team top down? So you, obviously you need solid founders, you know, and then you build that, your idea and the concept around your team. So we went out, obviously I met uh, Paul Kang, who's, you know, we're pretty close friends now, um, pitched the idea to him, obviously at a, at a bar in, in, or a few bars, I think it was the Intersect Festival in Australia through FinTech Australia. And then that just grew momentum. So we, we expanded the team from people who I've worked with at, at NAB before. And then when we were in Singapore, we connected with a, a group of people that we knew from a while ago, but wanted to work together, but didn't know how. Again, pitched this idea. And, and this is what, this is how we brought the team together. Now, I think that the key thing for teams, we, um, we took six months to build our, our entire team. So there's, We've grown to about 12 of us, and that took six months to vet us all. A few people dropped off, which is natural. There are different cycles of their journey. That's fine. But, yeah, it took us a good six months to find find the right people that you can connect with, you can work together and share that journey together. So yeah, that, that's how I want to rush into that. Yeah, it's a good tip yeah. there. So I think, yeah, take your time finding the right people to connect with and collaborate with. Yeah, so that was our core team. And we based our core team around, as I said, myself, Paul Kang, Wadir Katrib. So Wadir, we, funnily enough, met at, at Intersect through Paul. So okay. uh, I think things like Intersect, which is ran by FinTech Australia, it, you get to spend the whole week with people. So And it's it's not only in the day, it's at night, it's dinners, it's, it's bars, it's coffees. So you really can connect to, to share. So... As we mentioned, Paul with you and myself just hit it off and yeah, from there we've we've evolved and, and just brought more on. That sounds really good. So what's a two, what type of experience you mentioned? There's some VCs in the team, there's some consultants in the team. Obviously Paul runs a security organization from a security perspective. What sort of are you covering all bases within the Starker ecosystem or yeah, that's a good question. So we've got obviously one of the partners is, or the three main partners is uh, Widea. So Widea runs his own consulting business and heavily focusing in channel and distribution and sales. Uh, and we think okay. that's a that's a real key point for a startup. They all want to chase funding, but you need to actually chase clients, you know, mm. to get that traction. So you have to so, have your idea before you get yes. an investor in there. Yeah, exactly. So Wadir heads heads that up for us. He also keeps Paul and I in check because you know, Paul won't mind me saying this. We go on our own journey sometimes. You need someone, I think, grounded and solid to actually say, well, well guys, we know we can work on everything, but what are we going to focus on? So Wadir brings that level of you know seniority and experience from like an exec level. Obviously, you mentioned Paul Kang, so Intersoft Security. So he's the old, your startup founder that's done... Spent years across Southeast Asia growing that. And obviously he's the board, board director of FinTech Australia. So that was our team. And then from there, as I mentioned, some project directors, XNAB. So, you know, understanding tech concepts, bringing them to market, scaling teams. And then from the other angle, we've got, um, venture capitalists from London. So they run their, their own fund. Um, we have ex plug and play head of Asia, part of the team, an ex managing director of Supercharger Hong Kong, who's they're really heavily focused in product. Another one of the team is your ex management consultant in corporate, so Deloitte, Goldman's, you know, M and A type experience. We're fortunate enough to have our, our board member, who's um 
runs a, a fairly um, decent sized law firm out of Australia and has a M&A boutique investment bank tied into it in Asia Pacific. So it's got all there. <laughs> covering quite a few angles. Yeah, quite a few bases like there. Definitely. All encompassing yeah. team. Yeah, and I think it just plugs those gaps for any startups. Like, what elements are we missing where if a founder comes to us for advice or help, we've got it all covered. But the second point is that networks, because if, if most of us spends either in a startup, entrepreneurial journey, corporates, so we're, we've got most of those bases covered so we can understand the journey from, from a founder, because it's tough doing a startup, you know. From an idea on a PowerPoint to you know, two years later, it's should we keep going or not? It's yeah, tough it's work. not an easy journey. Yes, it is. So the story it's is a massive learning. No, it's a, it's a journey that we jump in. So obviously, you know our journey a little bit, but yeah, building businesses, it's a learning experience. And I think yeah, from from the past few years for us, it's all about how you can connect and networks pivotal. So if you're growing network and the people around you, it just expedites everything. So one lens of bringing those people together makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and that's what it is. It's it's how we're going to help fast track via our own experience or our own networks. Mm -hmm. So let's pair it all apart and have a look at a start, what you do from for a founder themselves, so you obviously help them generate some VC, maybe some funding, but you also mentioned a bit about sales, so helping from that perspective. So is it a mentoring thing? What Where do you start if some a founder comes to you? What's the offering yeah. that they get? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So we run we run certain pitch nights to actually give them a bit of marketing and exposure. Yeah. We also invest in some of the companies ourselves. So some of the companies where we see a, a value proposition we know we can expand them through our networks we'll you know invest in them get a bit of equity and then scale them through our our networks whether it be you know in your fintechs which we're all pretty heavily involved in we've got a data company that we're actually it's a data cleansing company so we're actually scaling that through you know either through Australia or via Singapore half our team's based in Singapore and half's in in Australia mm-hmm so there's a bit of a mix there, definitely. So how do I'm a founder beginning the journey? What do you recommend you do? Do you look at building team first or product first? Where do you start? Yeah, that's a good question. It depends on your tech skills because what you find in the market, obviously, is yeah. you've either got this PowerPoint and then mm. you, you've got a lot of people coming in to say, okay, where do I start with the tech? Or you've got it the other way around, heavily focused tech founders but not sure how to get it to the market. So I think there needs to be, and you guys are well aware of this, a healthy balance between a business mindset and a tech mindset, but then tying in that product and user experience. So for those non-tech founders, how would you suggest they then take their idea from the presentation to something like a prototype or an MVP to get it in front of people? Because I'm sure the presentation is going to get you to a certain point until you start putting rubber on the road. Yeah, look... There's a few ways to speak to speak to guys like you. <laughs> that's, that, that'll that, do it for sure. That, well, that, well, that's the easiest way, and that's where we've built out networks. Like we've got a few few companies we work with to say, "Hey, have a look at these." And most people, being you know the startup community, spend that hour or two to workshop and say, "Okay, this is what you need to do. Do you want to get a, a local dev team? Do you want an offshore dev team? If you've got an offshore dev team, there's risks, so you'll need a, a CTO or local delivery manager to actually oversee the product because 
you know, sometimes we all think about it, it's cheaper, but if you can't manage it, it's just going to do really well. It's about to help, yeah. And you look at the um the hourly rate. If yeah, if you can't manage it, we've seen those before. Yeah, it's um, cheaper per hour, ex- but it's ten times the hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you sometimes you never get a result, which is the disappointing part. This is the reason why we started the podcast. It was October last year. It was about a week apart. We had five founders come to us, and over the course of that week or so, they basically said they blew over a million dollars together building product that never worked. Yeah, they tech couldn't manage the yeah. delivery yeah. of it and get the mm-hmm. team running smoothly the way they mm-hmm. needed it. The communication was a problem because they didn't understand tech, so they couldn't explain to them in the ways yeah. that they would understand to deliver the product they wanted. So they just had the teams that weren't right fit, really. Mm. Oh, it was just frustrating to see that because they all had great ideas, but then they blew their budget and then they just had no return from there. So other than going to find more money, but it's hard to find money after you blow two, three, four hundred grand on a product. Investors may not trust your execution at that point. Yeah, and and that's that's exactly right. I think where where many of them, you know, probably need a bit more guidance is making sure the requirements are right. Because you know, mm. obviously project management background and you guys yeah. did background as well in project management, you actually say, okay, we've got this concept, but where are the requirements that, that underpin that to, you know, to exactly be specific what you want and what you're going to achieve. And then that's, that I think is pivotal to, to the end result and saving the money. Yeah. And, um, and focusing on those throughout the journey really of the development. So you can always pull it back if it starts diverging, unless it's a pivot. I think you're right with that as well. Cause you know, that's all being found is when you build a product, you want everything perfect everything ready you want to build you know your end product but half these companies that they they look up to they've they've gone through three rounds of funding and they've got big dev teams but get a minimal viable product get it to the market test it it doesn't have to be perfect you get the feedback and then you know you'll probably get funding off the back of that off you know traction and then then build your your perfect version but Coming back into what your team does, you've got to make sure the underlying architecture is ready to scale. And you, know, you guys can explain a lot more about that than, than what mm-hmm. I can. But mm-hmm. Yeah. If it's, it's not built big. right from the beginning, it's like a, a house foundation. You can't build a triple-story house if you haven't built a foundation to support it. You can't just say, yeah, just move the bathroom from this corner of the house to the other corner of the house because the plumbing's not there. You have yeah. to tear up the slab and start again. Like It's the same concept. It has to be planned right from the beginning. I think there's a couple of options there. So you can go and provided that you plan for this, you can build an MVP that you know you're going to scrap. That's one option. You know that it's using maybe different technology out there, pulling some pieces together and just showing an outcome. That's one option. It's definitely an option some people take because it's less intensive. Also, it can be a little bit risk because you know that that's the outcome that you're looking for just to get you to the next phase. But that's a funding game too. I find that people just build for funding, yeah. not for actually serving customers. And that's a, that's a fine balance there. So do you build a product that you can scale upon or do you build a product that you scrap and move later? It's probably a question for you because I prefer to build a product you can build upon, but it's more investment into architecture. But what do you recommend there, Mark? Yeah, I think it's, um, depends on their, what's their strategy. Like, yeah. I'm sure we've all seen, I think, what was a show in, in Silicon Valley that it's, you know, whatever you do, don't make money. But <laughs> unfortunately, if you haven't got a big check, mm. you still need that traction. You know, traction is whether getting on procurement panels, whether it's being, you know, getting those first you know, thousand clients, um, something that's mm-hmm. going to show that there's a market for your product. So, mm. 
probably to your question, it's, it depends on how deep your pocket, but, you know, why not build on solid foundations of architecture and, you know, choose your architectural strategy because it's going to be cheaper in the long run. Mm. Yep. Oh, it is, yeah, because if you're looking at just funding it through the process, it becomes, yeah, it gets more expensive because you're scrapping products. You can go spend 100 grand on an MVP. You're scrapping product, scrapping investment, and you need the next round to move. So that's a little bit dangerous there. So yeah, you want to be proving the outcome. There'll always be a, like a version two of the product. It just depends how soon you want that to come around. Yeah, exactly right. And look, we went through the same of it with with our platform. Like, <laughs> got that many features I want on there, but it's well yeah. when the timing's right because there's too much to do as it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah just that, to touch, I was going to say just to touch back a bit on. We were talking about like the products and MVPs to help you guide that decision whether you build something now and you know it's going to be scrapped as soon as you get more funding to build the proper platform. Is that something you would advise people to sort of bring on a, an advisor or like a tech co-founder to help them make that decision? There's not something a non-techie can make on their own, I don't think. Yeah, I think I think either or. Probably a, a technical co-founder. If not, you know, spend the first bit of money, employ um you know, have a workshop again with, with guys like you to say, you know, what about, what are our tech options? And whatever that first workshop's going to cost is going to save you that much more money in the long run. So it definitely, after you've got your concept, go speak to a few technical people and work out what's your tech strategy. Because some of the strategy might be for an MVP to test the market is to get, get something off the shelf and put some customers through it. Mm-hmm. And then. Yeah, that is, that can be. Yeah, we yeah, yeah. had an episode a couple of weeks ago with Ann Mills, Andrew. Mm-hmm. She built a platform. It didn't work. And then she just did everything by hand. And she's still doing it by hand three years later. So she's got like a face of the platform and then doing manual matching rather than having automated matching through her system. Mm. So she's yeah. proved the concept with off-the-shelf effectively just using a phone. Yeah, and that could work. depends on the actual business and the business model. And it's whether if, if that market you win needs your tangible IT, IP for the company to be worth more or if it's just a – you know, it could be a marketing product plan where where your investors and in that or how you make money, they don't really care about the tech. They care about your scale. And if you're making money that, that's not related to, you know, IP value of the company, that might be a good um a good answer or solution. So I guess it ties back into you know, what's your business, what's your business model, how big do you want to go? Um, like some companies might just want to stick to you know, a Melbourne or Victoria location. So, mm. or some people say, nah, I've got big plans to scale through APAC or the US or UK. So then obviously you're, you're going to prepare for that. But if you're just building something simple that it's going to run across Victoria or Australia, you might not need that heavy tech solution. So again, I suppose it depends on the product and the company. Yeah. With that one there, I think that's an interesting point. So, how do you find dealing with startup founders that want to take things globally compared to people that keep things just locally? Is it just a mindset thing or is it generally just their limiting thoughts on how the product could serve the global economy? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's a bit of both. Like some founders are comfortable to be, you know, in a certain certain area and they've got no plans of going overseas. It could be, you know, the heavy workloads involved going through the next rounds of funding and, and you know, having that five-year journey or it could be that they've got, you know, family commitments and, and they don't, you can't really travel overseas as much because, you know, setting up overseas is a is a big commitment, obviously. 
and even if you get you know teams overseas for you and you pay them, mm. you're still on the you're still on the phone twenty four seven. Yeah, in the so, US, you're up at night. Yeah, on the phones, it's yeah, very different markets when you're standing. Different time zones you have to manage, right? Yeah, yeah, that's mm. the thing. Mm-hmm. You don't half the time you don't know what time zone you're in. So it, it depends if you do want that work-life balance or you actually want to go scale globally. So with the that scaling globally question, what type of founder do you generally find wants to do that? So what is what's the difference between the two? What sort of attributes do they have? I suppose like. Obviously, ambitious, relentless, resilient. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you'll say, you know, stupidity. I would say craziness, because <laughs> we all a bit are in, you know, in this space. We, you know, especially when you say, I'm going to hop on a plane and, and go overseas and, you know, try your luck. It's so you've got risks. Some people are more calculated risks, and some people just say, I'll go overseas and try. Yeah. I think it's a, nothing to lose, but with the right people and the right guidance, it can be a lot easier. Just doing it on your own, uh, attempting to do some of this stuff can be challenging. So I think, yeah, what you're putting together at One Lens makes a lot of sense for um, people that even want to commercialize overseas because you've got that those people in the ground throughout Asia as well. And I think there's, that's a massive plus as to what you're doing there. One of the offerings you said that you help people get to scale or you scale through your networks and get that customer base. Do you find that some of the startups don't understand their customer at the start and you have to help them narrow that lens down? Yeah, exactly. I think it's not only the customer, it's sometimes the which segment they want to play. Because sometimes I'll say we're building for everything, but it's like, well, want to stick to two or three segments and then expand to, to different areas of the market. But I think you're right in that aspect. And it's just probably understanding what their value prop is a lot of times to the customer. Some companies were found they'll go in and speak all about the latest and greatest tech that they're running. And some of the times the end customer just says, well, how am I going to benefit? How are my customers going to benefit? What problem are you solving? And that's typically like in the enterprise sales solution, which obviously you guys play heavily in as well. Mm -hmm. I love that question. Um, What problem are you solving? Because it can be a challenging question for people sometimes when they're building a product and they don't really know. So I've had these conversations with people and they said, oh, we're building this tech. It does this, 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 and this. Okay, but what's the point? Who's going to want to buy it? And is there enough of an appetite for people to actually spend money on this thing? Sometimes it falls a little bit short. Have you found that in your space, in the space you're in a little bit in terms of people just build tech for the sake of building tech? Yeah, look, I think people have got an idea or burning ambition that they want to, you know, try go out there and prove it. And mm. as we know, a lot of startups unfortunately don't work. A lot of them, you know, do fail and it's hard on, on the founders, but I think it's, it gives them the lessons for a lot of their next projects. So, you know, a lot of good um, entrepreneurs have failed because mm-hmm. they picked the learning up. But it, I think the point is you've got to learn how to fail fast. Mm-hmm. Fail fast, learn, move on. Because if you if you keep, I think, dwelling on the past, you're never going to get, you know, move forward with it. But having said that, if a lot of people have put in their own cash and commitment, it is, you know, as I said, it can be tough. Yeah. It's, it's, how much do you want to keep pushing and what's that investment worth to you? It's an interesting one because I find that being, we're technically we're startup founders as well, but just don't feel like one anymore. But yeah, being in, in that world, it's like, you make decisions in the past and you've got to move on because you make decisions at the time that you thought were the best way to move forward. And sometimes they're not when you look back and you think, but I learned so much from them. So yeah, that learning and evolving is pivotal. And I think 
one thing you mentioned there is just pick an industry or a vertical and stick to that. Don't try and be everything to everyone. It just doesn't work. Um, I think in our past, we made those mistakes trying to be everything to everyone. And uh, yeah, you learn by picking a vertical. You can understand your customer a hell of a lot better. And you actually get to understand what their problems are because from the outside looking in, we can imagine what problems are within industries or within sectors. But yeah, until you really get to know your customers and even start working with some, especially if you've got an MVP rolling out, working with your customers, you get some great feedback and then you can find additional problems that you can be solving. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. And then I think I think the other key point of it is your networks you meet along the way. Mm. They're probably the most valuable asset to any founder or any company to have those networks to be able to pick up a phone, bounce ideas or or get that meeting. That's probably the one of the biggest key things for any founder is make sure you you've got solid networks or you know people if you get if you bring in on board members that very well connected to actually get you in places or or fast track that meeting. Mm-hmm. It's it's about who you know what what you know. So most of the time that yeah that's what I found during our journey as well. So Mark, let's dig in a little bit. If I'm a founder, what do I need to pitch to an investor? What should I be doing? to get ready for that conversation? What do I have to be, have prepared, basically? Yeah, look, I think uh, it depends what, what stage you're at on, on your life cycle. So if it's if it's your first round where you've got, you know, a pitch deck and, you know, for some reason every pitch deck and every founder at the start thinks their company's worth two and a half mil, that, that, that's what that's what. <laughs> That's our general thing. Yeah, I've got a yeah. two and a half million dollar idea, and, and half the time with no tech bill. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, how do you value an idea, Mark? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. That's my ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get a few powerpoints going for you. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I think the first round, which we've found a lot, is getting that first round, like your friend, family, full round to to actually back you, and whether it's that that first hundred k in the bank account to actually say, okay. Now I can got a bit of my own money in there, which is a bit of hurt money. Got some people who have bought the concept. You know, now let's actually go build that idea. And then from there, obviously, build out your tech, build out a bit of traction, then go through your next funding round. And your next rounds, you go, you know, through maybe your angel round and get a bit more traction. Usually you go through, you know, obviously, about 12-month runway, so you've got, you know, Use your journey up and down, etc. Pivots, whatever you need to do, and then the next one is obviously going to your more more sophisticated investors. Mm-hmm. So by that point, so talking to a sophisticated investor, what should I have in place? Where should I be on that journey? Because that's not the first conversation. Clearly, uh, what should yeah. I have? Well, look, we tend to think you should be on their radar a good six months out, mm-hmm. because especially the more um, you know the VC funds, they'll they'll technically want to. I want to know you. I want to see your journey in six months. It can happen, but it's rare that, you know, a VC would say, love your idea, a month later, cash in. Mm. At the early stage, it's rare. It does happen. But, yeah, I think obviously you need your deck. You need all your due diligence stuff sorted out so you're ready to go. You need your solid team in place. Uh, most of the time, again, if you've got tech, technology claims, obviously they're going to do due diligence on your tech. You know, obviously they'll check all your legals, they'll check your accounting, so have all your accounts in order. You know, they've got their checklist ready to go and if, it, if someone's going to write a big check, they're going to run right through you. And so they should. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. That's their money they're handing over. They need to protect um, themselves. Correct. Yeah. yeah. 
They want to be a smart investor, not just uh, throw money at willingly at anybody. Yeah, I think, especially when you get that sophisticated level and big money on the table. Yeah, they're going to make do their due diligence, and they have to. And yeah, and I think the another point is there's some you know funds in Australia and Singapore and, and beyond that some of them sit with 1,200 people a year, some 3,000 people. So how well, are you going? Yeah. How are you going to stand out? and justify your unique selling proposition or your product or why you're different, why should they invest? So, you know, 1,200 meetings or that's mm. a lot of coffees or that's a lot of <laughs> how, yeah. how are you going to stick out? Mm-hmm. And it is hard. You know, so I think you've just got to be able to, to pitch right, justify yourself. And that's why if you're early, some of these programs, as I mentioned before, a friend that startup boot camp, for example, they really hone that in. You know, mm-hmm. what's your product? What are you selling? Get them to really pitch, you know, and constantly practice that pitch. Um, so there are good opportunities for your some of these companies wanting to either scale and get into new markets or wanting to validate their concepts or, or to actually get something into the marketplace. There's And there's a few of them around, obviously, now, but I think there's some, some better ones out there. Um, as mentioned, the, the guys at Startup Bootcamp uh, are great at what they do. And the, the second point is a lot of their focus, they'll try to get your pops into, into corporates and then the corporates will help validate your idea alongside mm-hmm. of you rather than, no, nah, that doesn't fit us next, next. They'll help shape how they can get you your product into their you know company. Okay. That obviously helps with the evolution of the product as well because generally um, products aren't perfect. So, yeah, we're always evolving and pivoting and iterating. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and look, I think on that, a lot of the corporates we're speaking to, their um, their innovation arms are, are actually kind of fast track startups, you know, getting into into the corporate because you know, as as we all know, that sometimes it can take nine to twelve months. By the time you go through legal, by the time you go through tech audits, procurement, nine months for a startup, sometimes they won't be around if they're waiting for that that contract or that check. They can fold in that nine months, but if they get that the quickest point to a yes, well then they they're already in and they can scale and, and go to get more customers offered. Mm. Is that timing definitely makes a difference, especially when you're bootstrapping effectively. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. I uh, I like to run a startup on the back of customer revenue. I think that's probably it's a hard yards, but it proves your product. And if you can do that, rather than just chasing the funding, I think, yeah, there's a point where you're going to need some funding. Clearly, it depends how you do that is probably the question mark. But yeah, chasing, I'd rather chase sales than chase investors' money if I can. That's that's my opinion on it. It'll, um, it'll probably think, turn into a larger investment if you have the sales yeah. on the board and the track record there to back yeah. you up anyway. Correct. And then you can prove a product. Yeah. Provided you can keep that runway moving and keep evolving product. Cause there becomes a time where, um, yeah, if you're not making any sales and you want to do iteration on products, there's no funding to do it. So being there, done that too, where you're just waiting for that next sale to keep evolving products. So it's a two prong approach or what the best approach is really. Yeah. Look, and I think, as I said before, one of our partners with yeah. you is a, a massive advocate yeah. of that is yeah. let's get your value prop ready. Let's get spend a lot more time getting you into you know, a customer, a client, mm. um, because obviously for a founder at the start, you, you split. If you're heavily chasing funds, that's a full-time job. Mm. And then building a product, as you know, is a full-time job. And then yeah. building value props or try to get into corporates, that's another full-time job. So if you haven't got the team to 
to go through it. Why not, you know, try to chase the client and then worry about funding a bit later if you got enough to, you know, keep the lights on. But yeah, Wadi is a massive advocate with the companies we work with, get the customers, get money, and then then you're not reliant on, you know, receiving any money. You, you've got, you'll have a pick of the investors that you want to invest in the company and more on your terms. Yeah, so that's more of a way of potentially being able to stand out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, if you're making sales, it makes it a bit less yeah. risky for the investor to put his money down for, than for an idea and a piece of tech that hasn't hit a customer yeah, yet. I think, a yeah, one of our other episodes, I just remember the quote, it was um, yeah. you have to be able to sell it yourself to your customers before you can sell it to an investor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And look, that, that's what we've, you know, we've gone through as well. That if you can actually, the more traction and the longer you can hold out because you're, you're self-funded, well, the, obviously, the more you can justify your value or the more the value of your company is going to go up uh, and the more you can pick and choose. If you've got money in the bank, you can say, I don't need to invest until I want. Yeah. I think that's a pretty powerful place to be if you can get there because it's a lot, not that easy to get there either. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> if you're building off the back of your bootstrapping and you're doing it for years, it takes yeah a lot of hard yards to get there. But if you can, I think we've had this chat, like you're creating revenue. If you had a hit break even, you're laughing basically because you don't need the cash. Only you need cash to scale, which is a very different conversation than I need cash to build a product. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I, I, yeah. You're trying to get to that next level then, not the first level. Yeah, exactly. And it's, I think it's the drive and how hard some founders want to actually chase it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? So it depends yeah. on which, which seat you come from as well, a so founder. Would you see like urgency yeah. comes into that where some founders just want everything done as quick as possible. And then that's why they just chase funding first. Oh, I think both from sales and funding, you've got some founders that are just more, I think, relaxed and. Mm-hmm. As it evolves, it evolves, but then you've got you know, certain founders that are just relentless. You know, when I was part of Evolve, we were, we were booking flights at you know nine ten at night, hopping on a two o'clock flight and going to Singapore for a meeting. You know, having that face to face element yeah. rather than obviously now the times have changed with mm-hmm. with Zoom, where where people are I think more accustomed to Zoom now. So that's been you know one benefit of it. Whereas before it was um you know being face to face, getting to know who your customers are, what they want. And it was easier to sell into that being, being in front of them. Mm-hmm. I think now though, obviously with, with the environment we're in, it's been accepted a lot and oh, it has to, and a lot more people are contactable. I'm not sure about you guys, but now everyone seems to want to have a Zoom call or get on Google or pick up the phone because it's just like, you know. You've got no other option. <laughs> Otherwise, you're stuck in your four walls. Yeah. <laughs> so everyone's yeah. Yeah, reaching out. Everyone's right? just used to it now and understands the value of having those yeah. Like yeah. service to them. Where before it was, we can meet in person. This is just mm-hmm. taking some element away, but not giving the same value. But it actually is providing the same value. Exactly right. And then you factor in a lot of them, um, you know, especially a lot of the people in corporate who, if you're trying to sell them to them, by the time they, you know, go to and from work, by the time they, they go out for their coffees and you meet them as well and come back, half your day's gone and then you actually got to go home and, or, you know, to the office to actually do the work. Now you're finding a lot of, you know, the corporates obviously at home so they can take, they've got time to take the call and they're actually happy to talk to people. Yeah. yeah there's a lot more meetings, I think, happening now simply because that travel time's <laughs> been cut out. I think those yeah, first two exactly. weeks we started working from home, it was... Like it was five hours at first. Back to meeting. <laughs> <laughs> we thought, oh, we can do back to back. And then we realized yeah. what that meant. 
Yeah. Yeah, rule of, yeah. Let's just ease it off a little bit because you don't have to smash everything in one day because, yeah, it's pretty – I think everyone's yeah, really adjusting. Yeah. try and have all, all our meetings would be on like a Tuesday and Wednesday. But in fact, a half an hour travel in between so you'd have a break. Yep. We had the same mentality in Zoom, but there was no break. It was just leave one room, click the next button, you're in the next meeting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's a fair point. Um, yeah, I think we went through that yesterday, Andrew. I think, yeah. I think you pull out four or five meetings just back to back and it's like, well, you still need that break. You, you know, you need yeah. a reset. You've got to take notes. Yeah. You've got to understand. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's about as well mentally preparing for that next meeting. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's like being late to a, whether it be corporate or a, a VC meeting. It's, if you're late, you've, your mindset's not there because you're, you're too focused on being late or, you know, you're, mm-hmm. you're flustered in traffic, whatever it is. So I think preparing that meet for that meeting is you know, important as well. Yeah. So that, there's obviously been an impact on meetings, but in the scheme of investing, what does it all mean? Obviously, COVID, a lot of unknowns across the globe. Are investors a little bit more um, holding on to their cash right now or are they looking for opportunity? What? Where do you see it? How do you see it playing out over the next, I don't know, 12, 18 months? Obviously, there's a lot of unknowns there, but what are you seeing from your network that's basically talking about investing and are we going tech play? What are they doing? Yeah, it's a really good point. And we had one of our board again, Arsene, wrote a really good piece here this a few months ago. So what we found was at the start, it was a lot of the VCs was trying to understand where the risk is with their own portfolio, like at the very yeah, okay. early stage of COVID, mm-hmm. you know, uh, how much capital do they need to be propped up? What's their risk exposure? You know, especially the verticals that that some of them were in. And then as that evolved and that sort of stabilised, we started to find, you know, new verticals for them to invest in and then them starting to be a bit more active. So if we look at, you know, just recently there's a couple of um purchases in or investments in the fintech space. So we're finding that's heating up again. We're finding some fintechs won't survive and have gone down into the, some of the neo banks, but some of them have thrived and some of them are getting more funding. Insurance tech's another massive player that we're finding a lot of investment. Obviously, digital marketing, um, yeah. ed tech's gone massive, health, health mm-hmm. tech again. Mm-hmm. So we're starting to find there's certain pockets that are really you know, getting funded. If if we look at, you know, some of our friends at um Complied Vantage, they they just got a Series C round just closed the other day for fifty million. So that, so that was all over yeah, that was all over LinkedIn. So there's some still big deals, but I think obviously the investors are just reevaluating and then trying to understand where they want to put their cash in. Mm-hmm. Yep. So so a couple of key areas to probably look at area for yeah. you. Yeah, having said that, I think some of the Earlier rounds, investors did dry up a little bit because obviously some of um, you know, some mates, for example, uh, property developers throwing some cash into some earlier stage startups. When they had to reevaluate what's happening with their own company, they've pulled back because that, that that's not their full time job. You know, they've they're into yeah, property. Take, take the, the risk off the plate and just yeah, let it go for the moment. Things settle down. Their own investments from their own businesses or like their super or yeah. stuff, they need to just make sure they've got that moving forward yes. rather than potentially losing it. Yeah, exactly. And then they have to get extra capital to put into their own projects to keep them and make sure they got across the line, to, especially at the really early stage. So that's where we've seen there was a bit more of a, an impact. Okay. Yeah, so the early stage. I think, yeah, the early stage money is the high risk, right? So in times of economic economic downturn, 
people, yeah, don't want to take too much risk. Right? <laughs> if it's a, it's a proven product making revenue and it's growing through COVID because there are businesses that are, that's going to make it a lot more sense to put your money there than it is to put it in something that's going the other way. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly. And uh, from what I hear too, um, yeah. a lot of these companies, especially corporates, are, mm-hmm. are getting projects that would have taken nine months off the ground, three, two or three weeks off it. So they're actually, you know, getting startups and companies through and to solve a problem that they need to solve right there and now. There's a bit more of an appetite, isn't there? Yeah, because there's, especially how we're all out of the office, I think that's been the biggest real kick up the ass for everybody. Yeah, it's like, definitely. what do we do? Like one of our corporate clients, they basically spent a month digitising the way they connect to the business. They ripped off, they pulled out all their servers and infrastructure, put it all on the cloud, and they got it done a month. It would have taken them probably two years otherwise. Mm-hmm. So there's just the urgency all of a sudden because it's a must. Yeah, there's more value nice in to have. it now yeah. and quicker. Correct. Well, you have to at this current climate. So mindset shifted just to get the current climate through this, but I think there's investing in areas that can help them now. But yeah, I'm not, especially in the corporate world, what are you seeing the investing that might help in the two-year time? Is that slowing or is it just the now that people are focusing on? Oh, people are still, um, from what we're finding, that they're, they're opening up their books mm-hmm. to, you know, to invest in the future, like obviously um, emerging techs. Mm-hmm. So we're finding they're still looking at those companies, but they're just vetting them a bit, bit differently okay. now. So yeah, there's a few deals that we know have gone through recently through through our own networks. Um, but yeah, they're, they're still playing the long game. So mm. I think where a lot of people panic as well is VCs generally play all the larger ones, the five to seven year you know mm-hmm. fund cycle. So they're in it for the a longer yeah, longer time. game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there there's some good buying opportunities for them in this market. Yeah, definitely. Um, you can get a little bit less multiples in the current market. That's for sure. In terms of the yeah. investment dollars. <laughs> yeah, exactly so, right. Yeah. Exactly. And we've known a few companies that were preparing for um, a big, you know, decent raise prior to COVID. Mm-hmm. They had a lot of the checks on the table, but when COVID hit and the investors pulled the brakes, obviously they needed that runway. So then they were in a different position. They had to do, you know, lower their valve. And three months later, they got the money, but the valve was you know, more favorable for the VC. And so that's the climate we're in, unfortunately. It's not going to favour where um, the startup. We're not in a, a burning economy right now, and there's a lot of risk out there. So unknown. It's a more unknown uncertainty. Yeah. That's when things slow down, right? So, yeah, I think it's um, a good place for an investor or someone that's got cash on the, on the side, uh, ready to put it into a market that could, yeah, turn at any moment. I think that's probably, yeah, where we are at the moment. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting mm-hmm. space. And I think, yeah. especially in Australia, we'll see where we are the next, you know, three months. We will. It's good yep. to see, you know, Brisbane opening up. I know they've been pretty active up there and yep. obviously WA South Australia has opened. So mm-hmm. we're starting yep. to kick off. So let's see. We're, in a, we're in a lucky state. Melbourne locked away. <laughs> you have to wear masks outside, but I think we've got to do what we've got to do and um, hopefully it starts turning in the other direction pretty soon because, yeah, numbers still seem to be growing a little bit. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And obviously we're in a middle winter here, so hopefully that we push through that soon. Yeah, we're coming to August now, so still a bit more of winter left, but yeah, we're getting there, which if is we nice. we're locked down, it's probably the best time to do it, though. I oh, know, yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> I don't have to go outside and freeze. and <laughs> We stay inside a nice warm house, and uh, yeah, it is, is the best time to do it. Yeah, exactly. So, Mark, to, that's been a great conversation just talking about 
investing and what a tech startup and a, a founder could be doing. Just the key takeaways from your journey and your experience. Obviously, you've been involved in startups yourself. You've put together uh, different technology businesses. What are some of the tips you'd go back to Mark that was starting his journey years ago and say to Mark, make sure you tick this off before you jump into a venture? What are some of those things that you might just say, Mark, let's tick this off before we jump into anything? I would think at the start it would be stay in your job as long as you can. <laughs> like I was at, <laughs> yep. oh, coming, I was at the NAV, you know, it's, it's a yeah. job. And then I went into the consulting world. So mm-hmm. obviously the cash is awesome. And then I think it's probably understanding it's going to take a lot longer than what you think. Mm-hmm. And you guys even know too, like some founders think, I oh, will build this tech in, in 12 weeks. Reality, it's, it's six months. You know, and so I think it's better understanding your schedule and, you know, how long it's going to take. And if you can stay earning cash flow in a role and then while you're building your tech out, and then there's a point where you say, okay, now, now I need to actually go full time on this because the investor, you know, will will want you to be full time on, on the, um, your project, obviously. Um, that's what I think. I think the main thing will be your timing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. I was reading an interesting quote today on LinkedIn. They basically said, if you work out your numbers and you basically work out, I think we get a bit carried away with our estimated sales. <laughs> so what he said was, um, <laughs> yes, if you can half your sales and double your costs and you can still break even, that's maybe worth exploring because, yeah, sometimes we underestimate what it's going to cost us and time is one of those things. It's a big factor. But then sales is another thing. Yeah, we'll get 10 million users in five minutes. It just doesn't happen that way. Yeah, I think that's exactly 100% right with what you said there. Especially, I think it's, if you're selling enterprise, you've got mm-hmm. to allocate. It's going to take a long, long time. Like we, we've sold into a, a few corporates. Yeah. It took nine months and they've, and we're all like, you know, that's, that was. Nine months is good. Yeah. Yeah. They, ca- they came back to us and they said, oh, oh, at the time, this was a few years ago. They came back and said, I can't believe we got you in that quick. <laughs> Quick. Yeah, they go, oh, usually it's 18 months, but by the time someone makes a decision and, you know, the mm-hmm. project and internal mm-hmm. politics and having champions assigned to, to actually train and, and implement. So that that's a key thing. Although, obviously, due to these innovation arms, a lot of those pops are coming quickly, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's understanding it, it can take you know, nine months to 12 months and, and depends on, depends on the company's agenda too. Like you, you could be in the door and then they've scrapped the project through no fault of your own. They've mm-hmm. just said, we don't have a budget or we're pivoting or a new GMs came in. We've had documents obviously from a project background that took two yeah. months to be signed off. You know? Yeah, it happens. It's not surprising yeah. at all. And, and, you, and the financial year is a very interesting one. So when you hit end of financial <laughs> year, your, yeah, your project can just go out the door. It's like you could yeah, be. Or it's instantly oh. signed off. <laughs> Yeah, or yeah, one of the other one. Yeah. Well, we've got budget to burn. Let's just use it somewhere. Yeah, that, yeah. that's exactly right. It depends where you sit in their budgets. Do we do we push it through this round or do we wait another three months while we've got fresh budget? That's probably a really good point that you guys mentioned there. You yeah, know, and that, both happen. Yeah, and that's who knows for all of your own. Like, and you've probably got the person internally saying, we're ready to go. We're just mm-hmm. waiting on the budget. So, sorry, yeah. it's three months now. Mm. Yep. It's a tough conversation to have, especially when you're trying to get that sale, get some revenue in, and you're waiting months and months and months. Yeah, so yeah if you're working with a corporate, you've got to understand how they operate, and you've got to understand mm-hmm. that there's buckets of funding, and they have to pull from the right one at the right time. Yes. Not just yeah, one person making the decision. Mm. 
that's a very, very valid point. Uh, I think the other side is B2C. So, you know, it's how quick your product can get out to a, to a market, your adoption of users, the customer journeys, to how, how you're going to keep that, that sticky for a better word. Cause you can get a hundred thousand users and then how do you maintain them and keep them active? That, that's probably another point, you know, a tricky area to do. Can continually uh, provide value. Yeah. I'm a big fan of beta B two B. It's a longer process from a buying cycle, but if you get it right, you're in for the long term. B two C, you have to get it very right to keep consumer based customers for years. Whereas B to B two B, I find it a little bit more um, not easier. I think you got that big buying cycle, but yeah, once you can land in a B two B and you serve them right, they'll be around for a while. So I think yeah, it's it's the type of business that you want. Obviously, B two C can scale super fast because there's a little barrier to entry if it's a ten dollar a month product it's very different to 100 200 grand a year product it's yeah it's a very different proposition but like you said they're understanding who you're selling to will impact the way you need to project out time so if it's b2b 12 months 18 months contracts if it's b2c you can be picking 10 20 000 people up in a month if you're doing well so yeah it's yeah. a very different proposition yeah that, that's exactly right definitely that and Again, I mentioned uh, with you is a bigger fan of that, you know, yeah. enterprise yeah. sale into corporate yeah. because it's it's a longer sales cycle. But once you're in there, yeah, it's you're in there for a long time, provided you know you service them right and you maintain that that relationship. Yeah. They don't change their decisions quickly as you would know once you're in there. Yes, <laughs> correct. Yeah, well, you got in there, you've done something right. Well, well, no one wants to be that that person or that GM responsible for for backing out that project or that. that been that you know the project that didn't work or that was an experiment it's mm, true very true so mark that's been a great chat man just talking about what opportunities there are for um, founders if they want to come learn about one lens what's the best point to reach out to you just jump on your website or would they jump catch on linkedin where would they yeah. approach and talk to you yeah just hit us up on linkedin we're always up for a chat um yeah. obviously now with zoom and and all these other techs that we're all using just Hit us up on LinkedIn and, yeah, we're happy to have a chat. Obviously, we've got a, a pitch night coming up on August the 10th. Um, we've got there'll probably be about 20 or 30 VCs from all over the globe there, some local pretty high-profile ones. Um, we're fortunate enough to have the minister, so Senator Jane Hume, who's a massive advocate for fintech innovation and, you know, helping the startup communities especially. Um She's one of the main drivers behind open banking. So she'll okay. be having a keynote. So there's a couple opportunities for startups. So you just hit us up on LinkedIn or, or log onto the platform and, and load your company up and we'll vet it. No, very good, Mark. No, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your experience so far and um, all about one lens. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Thanks Mark. Thank Cheers. you.